If you open up your Bibles, we're going to be looking at John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Jesus is continuing his defense, so to speak. Hence, can I get a witness? Yes, Jesus, you can get a witness. As a matter of fact, we're going to be looking at four of those witnesses today. So if you open your Bibles, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, we're going to jump right into this because we've got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. In May 2016, there was an Israeli man who petitioned the court for a cease and desist order or a restraining order. Do you know who that restraining order was against? God Almighty. That's right. He was upset with God. Uh, So he wanted to take God to court because he was upset because God was not being, quote, not very nice to him and treating him somewhat harshly. So he called the police multiple times at his house complaining against God, who I don't know if he was his neighbor or what, but the police recommended that he would file this report or this restraining order. So 10 times that happened and finally he took out this restraining order And the request was sent before the judge. So this man's name was Shoshin. And he appeared in court that day. But do you know who didn't appear in court that day? God didn't appear in court that day. Or at least they didn't see him appear in court that day. I believe that God was there. And the judge threw out the case, calling the man delusional and letting him know that he needed outside help. I would suggest that he would get help from God, the one that he is trying to take to court. Can you imagine one day if God did show up, though? I mean, (laughs) things would change rather quickly. I think even the judge would uh, be removed from his place as well, wouldn't he? It's kind of funny. I think people feel that way about God because they don't see him. They don't believe in him, and therefore they think that they can put him on trial. God's always on trial in this world. A lot of times God's on trial for suffering, for evil, for all the bad acts. And people say, well, where's God? What's God doing? How come God can't stop it? And they judge him. They bring him to court. And of course, they've already passed the verdict. He's to blame. Situation that we find here that Jesus has entered into because of the religious authorities is the same. They've taken God to court, so to speak. They have accused Jesus. They've accused him of breaking the Sabbath law. And they've accused him of making himself equal with God, claiming to be God. But it's funny because Jesus isn't harming anyone. He's actually healing people. And they want a cease and desist order on Jesus to stop him from helping people and to stop him from telling the truth of who he is. They want him to stop. But this time, you know what? Jesus shows up for court, and Jesus brings with him a few witnesses. I want you to look at the beginning of this section here in verse 31. Listen to what Jesus says, and this is Jesus setting up what exactly is going to take place here in this passage. So Jesus says this. He goes, if I testify about myself... My testimony is not true. Well, what does he mean by that? Why is he saying his testimony is not true? Is Jesus a liar? No. 
he is going back to the law in Deuteronomy. And what Jesus is about to do, he is doing for the sake of those who are listening. The law in Deuteronomy says this, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter, and the matter here is Jesus healing on the Sabbath and making himself equal with God, a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus brings these witnesses into court. He doesn't need to. Listen to what he says here. There's another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives me is true. That another is God the Father, and we're going to be talking about his witness. So I kind of did something a little bit different today. This, we're going to enter into this section, and what you're going to see is actually the tables are going to be turned. Uh, Jesus, the defendant, then becomes the prosecutor, so to speak, and he accuses those who are accusing him. But I wanted to kind of play a game. You guys are going to be the jury. Uh, I'm going to kind of be the, the defense attorney for Jesus, and then we're going to switch over at the end there, and then Jesus is going to finish up and prosecute those who are accusing him. Uh, so you're going to have to make a verdict at the end of this. Because the witnesses that Jesus brings forth is not just for his hearers, the, the Jews, the religious leaders who are accusing him, they're for us here today. And they could do two things. Number one, if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, they can convince us that Jesus is who he says he is. Number two, if we do believe in Jesus Christ, they can encourage us, reminding us that Jesus isn't making these claims in isolation. He's got proof. He has evidence. So we're going to look at these witnesses. We're going to talk about our first one. The first witness is John the Baptist. So this was working. No, it's not working. Okay, back to, back to normal. All right, so verses 33 through 35. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I received is not from man. But I say these things so that you might be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus calls forth John the Baptist. We're going to call forth John the Baptist here in a second. He's not going to make an appearance. Don't worry. If he does, you'll all be convinced very quickly. But I want to hit on something before we call John to the stand here, is what Jesus says. He says, my, my testimony isn't from man. The testimony which I receive is not from man. It's a reminder, and we're going to hit on it even further when we talk about the witness of the Father. Who Jesus is, his identity is not dependent on what we say about him. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change the claims that he makes, and it doesn't change the veracity or the truthfulness of those claims. It, it absolutely matters not, because his testimony, the testimony that he has is from the Father, and we're going to be talking about that, and that's really, folks, the only testimony that matters. So it doesn't matter what this world believes about who Jesus is. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change his identity. Either Jesus Christ is God, 
which he has claimed to be, or he's not. What I say about that matters nothing, because he is who he is. Now, he calls forth, and we're going to call forth John the Baptist, so I just wanted to clarify that, but why is he saying those things? Why, why is he doing this? So that what? You might be saved. So Jesus is bringing forth these witnesses. God is giving us evidence of the claims of who Jesus is. It's like we're in a courtroom, and Jesus is there, and he's like, okay, first witness, second witness, third witness, fourth witness. And Jesus is verifying his identity to us. So when people put Jesus on trial, it's not just Jesus that's on trial, it's the witnesses as well. If we don't believe the witnesses, then that's our problem. But Jesus provides us with evidence of who he is and what he can do. And he begins with John the Baptist. So we're going we're gonna to bring in John the Baptist here. John, no, no, John, you don't need a tie. There he is. He probably comes in, and John's probably reeking, smelling, right? Comes on in. Thank you, John, for being with us today. Appreciate your time. John, can you tell us anything about why you are here, John? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it kind of all starts back to when I was born. Oh, wait a second, John. We don't have time to go back that far. No, I think this is really, really important for what we're trying to say. So yeah, when I was born, I, I wasn't even supposed to be born. What do you mean you weren't supposed to be born? Well, it was kind of miraculous birth. Why, I thought Jesus was the only miraculous birth, John. No, it was kind of a miraculous birth. See, my parents, no offense to you older folks out there, but my parents were well into their 60s or 70s. They were well, behind, well, well past the childbirthing time period. Oh, I didn't realize that, John. Thank you for sharing that. So what you're telling me is that your birth was surrounded by some sort of miraculous faith? Yeah, as a matter of fact, my father, that old kook, he was, he was high priest one year. And he, he went in, and he was doing what the high priest do, and an angel appeared to him. An angel appeared to your father? Yeah, I can't believe that. An angel appeared to your father? Yeah, he appeared to my father, told him I was, I was, I was going to be born, but guess what? That old fool didn't believe him. So then my father was made a mute. The angel just thought it would be better if my father didn't speak at all. And he told him what my name was going to be, and he would be able to speak when he named me John. So you're telling me, John, hang on a second. Parents, 60s and 70s, miraculous birth, and angel appeared to your father and then told him what your name was going to be. Yeah, that's right. Wait, there's more. There's more. Yeah, you see, I was testifying to who Jesus Christ was when I was in my mother's womb. Well, John, now wait a second. What do you mean when you were in your mother's womb? Well, didn't you hear the story? The story when Mary, the mother of Jesus, came and visited my mom, and I did a backflip in her belly. You did a back. I was pointing to Jesus when I was in her belly because I heard Mary's voice and I knew that was Mary's mother. So my life, even before I was born, was all about Jesus Christ. And then those guys, they sent their little delegation out to me. Yeah, so they sent them to So what happens when they send the delegation? Well, I told them the truth. I told them the truth of who Jesus was. Well, hang on a second, John. Now, how do you know, how did you know who Jesus was, John? This doesn't make any sense because you didn't see Jesus. You're in the desert. You're eating. I mean, you're kind of, you know, look at you, John. You know, not everyone's going to believe a guy wearing camel hair eating locusts and honey. Well, I'll tell you what happened. You see, I didn't know him. But the one who sent me, God, told me that the one 
whom the Spirit descends upon in a physical form like a dove, that's the one. Did that happen, John? Yeah, so I baptized Jesus and the Spirit comes down, physical form, as a dove, and then there was a voice. There was a voice, John? Now you're telling me you're hearing voices, John? Yeah, there's a voice, and it said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So that identified Jesus for you, yeah. And then they sent their little delegation, and I told them, and they were excited for a little bit, but once I called them a brood of vipers, you mean the spawn of Satan? Yeah, once I called them the spawn of Satan, they were a little bit upset with that. So here's John the Baptist. He comes walking into this church, and he gives this testimony. This is a, a witness. And so Jesus isn't saying this stuff alone. Something miraculous happened with this guy, John, too. We need to remember, for 400 years, Israel heard absolutely nothing, not a sound from God. No prophet. The first prophet is this guy. And what does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not the Messiah. He is. But if you don't believe John, Jesus has got more. And Jesus talks about his witness that he possesses, and that is the witness of the works, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Mark Twain, did you know Mark Twain often visited the Holy Land? Went to the Holy Land. He was accompanied by his wife on one of his visits. They were staying in uh, Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was a moonlit night and the weather was perfect, which gave Twain a romantic idea. I didn't know Twain was a romantic, but he did. And to take his wife out for a boat ride on the lake. So they walked down to the pier and he inquired of the man that was sitting on the rowboat, the guy who would get them across or take them out, how much he would charge them to get them out onto the water. Twain was dressed in his usual white suit, white shoes, and white Texas hat. And the oarsman, presuming him to be a wealthy rancher uh, from the United States, said, well, it's going to cost you about $25. So I guess back then $25 was a lot, but I would drop $25 to take my wife on a boat ride, no problem. Mark Twain thanked him and said, no, thank you. Turned away with his wife in his arm, and he said, I think I know now why Jesus walked on the water. <laughs> Jesus didn't walk on the water because he didn't have a boat or he didn't walk on the water because the cost of the ferry was too, too high, did he? But it makes us wonder, why did Jesus walk on water? Why did Jesus change water into wine? Why did Jesus heal a blind man? Why did he heal a paralytic? We're going to get to that in just a second, but before we do, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make a claim about myself, Okay. This is something you might not have known. You might have known this because of past experience. I have a gift. It's a very, very extraordinary gift. And my gift can actually help you. Okay? You know what that gift is? I keep wanting to use this. That would have been perfect, but it didn't. My gift 
is I'm an artist. What's why I don't, I'm not quite sure there's humor in that. I'm an artist, and if you need commissions done, if you need detailed commissions, only detailed, and if you want the best art around, I'm your man. So you can, you can trust me to carry out a good commission. So, and I know what you're wondering. I'm so glad Pastor Mark told me about this because now I'm going to utilize his gift and talents. And how come Pastor Mark gave up a life of fame and fortune to be our pastor? Well, it's I love you more. I can still do this on the side. So here's, here's what, that's my claim. So which one is my drawing? I mean, it's pretty obvious which one is my drawing, right? Because I just made the claim. So it's going to be backed up by the evidence, okay? So which one? Which, which guy? Is it, is it the guy on the left? Is that my drawing? Or is it that masterpiece on the right-hand side? Is that my drawing? Which one would you guys say? Okay. And is that, that's the better of the two. That's why you chose that, right? Is that the better? Is that... Let me ask you something. Does this back up my claim? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You do know about modern art? Abstract art? <laughs> we have a lot of artists. That's actually my daughter's drawing. Um, the good one. The detailed one. And she has a really weird gift. It actually scares me sometimes because she doesn't even have to look at things. And we have other artists in our congregation, Sydney Stoltz being one of them. Uh, and she has a gift and she sells her artwork on Etsy uh, and people buy it. So that means it's good, right? No one's, no one's going to be buying that. Roger Sharver's got a gift of art backed up by what? Evidence, the works, right? I am not going into the art field anytime soon. I, there's probably someone who would pay a million dollars for that, and, but that someone is also delusional like our friend in the courtroom. Why does Jesus do the works? He does the works as evidence. Listen to what he says later on to his disciples. He says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves that reveal that God is in me, that I am God. Not that God's in him, but that he's God and able to perform those miracles, and therefore able to do for you and me what he promises. Life. Give us life. Nicodemus says this early on. He says, no one can do the things you do unless something is happening, unless God is with them, or unless God has sent them. Jesus, who he is, is backed up by what he does. So it's as if now the bailiff has entered in exhibits one through seven in the Gospel of John. That brought him up here, all the miracles that he did. We have to remember something. Are those all the miracles that Jesus does? No. He chooses, John says, if we, if we, it would take all the books in the world to fill what Jesus does. And these are selected miracles to reveal to us his identity and his character and his ability 
to help you and me. These are real important, and the world knows these are important. The miracles are real important because a while back there was a, there was a thing called the Jesus Seminar. And the Jesus Seminar was about a bunch of scholars and theologians, and they all got together, and they wanted to look at the Bible, and they wanted to find the real Jesus, because the Bible can't present the real Jesus, because Jesus can't be God. And do you know what they did? Do you know what they took out? The miracles. Well, how is that fair? That's like, that's like not admitting the, the evidence that Jesus has given us. And they gutted the Bible of his miracles. And they gutted the Bible of his claims to deity. And all you're left with is a carpenter who can't do anything for anyone except himself. The evidence is just that, exhibits, for us to see exactly who he is. So exhibits one through seven are now entered into the court. So I hear the jury that you would see these exhibits. So I want you to look at these exhibits really quick, and we're going to just talk about what Jesus is saying through what he is doing or who he is or what he can do. So he first, he begins with the water over, changing the water into wine, which is his power over nature, right? The transformation, he's able to change what isn't into something else. And he also has compassion on those individuals who were in, having that experience, who are running out of the wine. And it also says that he's in touch with people. It's everyday life. They needed him to in, intercede, and he did so. Then the healing the sun. Remember how did he heal the sun? Did he heal? Did he go up to the sun? Did he touch the sun? Nope. He healed the sun from a distance. So his power over distance and his ability, his power over sickness and his ability to overcome a personal crisis. The healing over the paralytic. How long was he paralyzed for? 38 years. Does that mean anything to Jesus? Nope. You could be in a condition for for 50 years. You could be on your deathbed, 90 years. Can Jesus save you and heal you? Absolutely. About the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to talk about that actually next week. What's he take? The little, and he multiplies it. So it's the meagerness, and he makes it sufficient, not just for the crowds, but for his disciples It's a reflection on his ability to sustain us and to feed us both physically and spiritually. The walking on water, his power over nature. Healing of the blind man, his power over evil and sin and the fallenness of mankind. And then the raising of Lazarus. Do we need to say anything about the raising of Lazarus? All of those works just walked into this courtroom. And there's Lazarus. Hey, Lazarus, were you dead? Yep. What happened? I heard Jesus call my name. I woke up. But I want want us to notice something about these works here. It starts out in the everyday life situation, doesn't it? The wedding, something joyful, beginning of life. And where does it end up? In death. And he wants us to see 
that Christ is superior over all the areas of life, from birth to death. He is superior, as one commentator says, over the factors of life with which the human is unable to handle. We can't handle these things. He can. He's telling us something. He's saying, I got control over all of it from start to finish. All you need to do is put your trust in me. But Jesus doesn't need to bring forth evidence. He has a testimony from his father, the one who sent him. Brings us to witness three, the father, verses 37 through 38. And the father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. Guy tells us, uh, Guy tells a story about his three-year-old son, Ian, and Ian enjoys the Bible story about Samuel. How many people like the Bible story about Samuel? I like that Bible story. And Samuel, in the story of Samuel, Samuel hears God's voice at night, doesn't he? Right? And Samuel responds. So uh, the father, one evening after reading that story, uh, to little Ian, says, uh, did God ever speak to you? Ian immediately responded, yes, absolutely. I said, oh, what did he say to you? And he thinks about it, and he tries to get in his deepest voice. And he goes, Ian, go to bed. <laughs> and the father said, well, that explains why Ian settles down when I'm outside of his room, telling him to go to bed at night. So Ian is mistaken the voice. Uh, for the father, but I'll give something to Ian, at least he what? Listened, he heard him, and he went to bed. Unlike those who are accusing Jesus, uh, they have not seen, they have not heard, and his word is not in them. This is actually three indictments. Jesus now begins to become the prosecutor. He turns the tables on them. And he says, look, you, you guys who think you know him, who think you can see him or understand him, who think you hear him, who think you are obedient to his word, you ain't got nothing. Because if that were true, you would listen to me. That's what he's telling them right there. Three indictments, turns the tables on them and lets them know they are so far from God, it's not even funny. And to see God and to hear God, I think we, we, if he's speaking physically, we know that they didn't see God. And John begins in the very beginning by explaining something about God. No one has seen God at any time, but he who explains him, who is what? Jesus Christ. But if you see God, do you know what happens when you see God? You die. That's why Moses didn't see God. So if, if, if we're speaking and Jesus is, is taking literally the fact that he has seen God with his own eyes and the fact that he has heard God 
and the fact that God's word does abide in him. And he's saying, look, you've never seen God because if you were, you'd be dead. You never heard God, and he could be playing on the voices that have, were testified to him regarding who he is in both the baptism and the transfiguration. I think that's kind of where he is getting at with this point here. Um, but also that they've never heard God, meaning they're not listening to him or not obeying him. But there are two, two voices that Jesus has from the Father uh, that others have heard, that testify that Jesus has heard, and that testify to who he is. And the first one is at the baptism. And the voice says, what? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The second voice is even more important uh, because that's going to carry into the last witness, which is the witness of Scripture. He says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Do what? Listen to him. Listen to him. To him. There's a bumper sticker, and it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard the, uh, the jingle? There's a song. It's called by the, uh, they're called the Heritage Singers. You need to look up the video. It's kind of funny. It's like 70s when I was born, 1974, 75, something like that, and uh, there's ladies in these flowy dresses and these guys in these awesome mustaches and powder baby blue tuxedos. So, yeah, Stephanie, and they come out from behind the tree and they're like, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. And then they go into the chorus, though some may doubt that his word is true, I've chosen to believe it. Now, how about you? God said it. I believe it, and that settles it for me. Did I sing you into submission? Then another gift you didn't know about. <laughs> right there. You want to book me for art and singing? I'm all yours. Well, actually, R.C. Sproul takes issue with that statement. And it sounds kind of arrogant, you know, I mean, or kind of cute, whatever it is. Do you know what part he takes issue with? I believe it. And he says this, we need a new bumper sticker, a new jingle. God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter. Does it change? If I say to God, I don't believe that, God. I don't believe that Jesus is the one whom you sent. Does it change that fact if it's true? No way. No way. He says, if God opens up his holy mouth and declares something, we don't need another witness. Jesus turns the tables on them, and the burden of proof falls on us to prove that Jesus is lying. It doesn't matter. The burden of the proof falls on this world. So when we go out there and we're proclaiming Christ to people, don't worry about it. You, you need to tell me it's not true. I'll tell you what. You know why I know it's true? Because when I met Christ, I did a 180 in my life. You ain't telling me it ain't true. You ain't taking a punk kid like me who was all about himself 
and transforming them because I went to some rehab or whatever it was. No, I'll tell you what, I went to a rehab. His name is Jesus Christ. Changed my life. We don't have to prove it. They got to disprove it. It's not up to us. If I tell you I did something, I tell you I saw something, I tell you I heard something, you got to disprove it from me. That could be lying, but the burden of proof falls on you. It doesn't fall on Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, look, you guys say you're for the Father. You say you're for his word. You say you're for this. You're not. I know him. You've never met him. I am him. I'm God. I'm one with him. Falls on you. He calls forth the fourth and final witness, and the, the courtroom just erupts in pandemonium. The witness of the scripture, verses 39 uh, through 47. So we're going to read this and hit on this last point. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you do not have the love of, the, of God in yourselves. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and you do not seek the glory that is from one and, the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? Editor-in-chief of the Week magazine wrote a, a, a short column. He said a recent Yale study tracked that Three recent Yale study tracked uh, 3,635 people over a period of 12 years. They all had one thing in common. They liked to read books. How many people like to read books in here? We've got some book readers. It's good. So do you know that um, book reading and reading it for a long period of time uh, helps you gain life? They lived longer. The book readers lived longer. I don't think this is Kindle edition. I think this is real books. I don't think this is looking at your screen, stuff like that. You know how much longer they lived? Two years longer than everyone else. So you read books, you're just going to live longer. So it said, pile yourselves, arm yourselves with a, a, good, with a bunch of good books. Our lives and our sanity may depend on it. Two years is a long time, isn't it? I mean, I might start reading books for an extra two years. I read some books. But can you imagine thinking that by reading a book that you're going to live forever? That's what these guys did. Matter of fact, here's some, here's some quotes from uh, some of the, uh, some of the, the rabbis and what they thought. They, the more study of the law, the more life you have. Another rabbi uh, said this, If a man has gained a good name, he has gained somewhat for himself. But if he has gained for himself the words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. That's your correlation. 
It's interesting because we can look at the Pharisees and we can be like, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to us. But R.C. Sproul makes a really good point. He says it's worthwhile to remember that Jesus here is not speaking to the liberals of his day, was he? He's not speaking to the secularists. He's not talking to the unbelievers, so to speak. He's speaking to card-carrying fundamentalists, people who wouldn't give second thought about bringing their Bible to church with them. And basically, Jesus says this, you have a Bible study every week? You have more than your little 15-minute devotional? You, you pour over the Scriptures? You exegete those words? You're into the Greek? You're into the, the Hebrew? You study them? Because in them you think that is life. You obey the law, you follow the commandments, because in that you think that is life. He says, you're wrong. Yes, they lead to eternal life, but they do so by leading people to me. How can you read them and not believe in me? I want to point out here, the scriptures Jesus is referring to is not the New Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written at this point when he's speaking. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, and specifically, he's going to highlight Moses. The Old Testament, so, so far from being two books, right? It's really one book, and it is a book about God's reaching out to this world, God's kingdom, and God bringing his kingdom into the hearts of men, and then eventually into this world and setting up his kingdom and doing so through the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, in its types, in its allusions, and in its prophecies, all point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis. When he talks about the birth of the child, he's talking about Jesus Christ being the answer to the problem, which is sin. You know, there's around 400 prophecies about Jesus Christ, whether that they were personally fulfilled by him or by others in his context. So second or third party prophecies that are fulfilled to the things that happened to Jesus. They are prophecies about his birth. Jesus can't pick where he's born, can he? Did Jesus pick where he's born? No. About his life, the things that he's done in his life, about his death, and about his resurrection. Around 400, they say, give or take. Do you know what they compare that to? I don't know if you ever heard this before, but it's like filling the state of Texas up with quarters, which would, that's a lot of quarters. I'm not trying to nickel and dime you here. So, it's quarters. Sorry, that's pretty bad, I know. Hey, you just shake your head. That's good. That's what I wanted. So, it's like filling the state of Texas up with quarters and coloring one of them red and blindfolding someone and telling him to go pick it out. That's how likely it is for one individual and the surrounding context people to fulfill those prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. It's, not, it, it's a book that tells us what God is doing in this world and preparing us for the one he is going to send. But they don't believe him. And Jesus makes another indictment here. And it's because they're searching the scriptures. They're studying the law. They're putting on all these robes. They're doing all these things. Why? So that they can receive honor from one another. Reveals their motivation. They're not seeking God's glory or God's, God giving glory to them 
or pleasing God, they are seeking to please others by studying this work. And what happens when you do that? You reject Christ and you receive someone else. Jesus says something here that should scare the living daylights out of all of us. And commentators look at this verse differently, but Jesus says, you're going, you will receive somebody else in their own name. And I think, I believe, Jesus is referring ultimately to the Antichrist. The Jewish people, those who are conservative Jewish individuals, are still waiting for the Messiah. They're looking for him. Matter of fact, this is what some people say about that, some Jewish folks who are looking for the Messiah, who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, Messiah, can help them and help this world. That someone, a Messiah, can help them and help this world. The Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? Waiting for him. Thirteen principles of faith that are incumbent upon the Jew. The twelfth one is this, I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah, even though he may delay, nevertheless, I anticipate every day that he will come. Another person said, many people think the Messiah has already come, but Jews are waiting it could be anybody. It's a very cool idea. There's a blind date with the sacred. Another one said, 20 years ago, I would have said that the idea of a Messiah message was dying out in popular culture. Obviously, I was mistaken. More and more people seem to be embracing the idea that a Messiah will appear and he will fix everything. That's scary. Jesus came. He's the Messiah. He's the one who fixes everything. If we don't receive him, nature abhors a vacuum, doesn't it? You're going to fill it with someone else. Jesus completely flips the tables here. He brings in the star witness of Scripture. And the, and the courtroom goes wild, and they're all excited now. They're like, yeah, Moses is here. Oh, Moses is going to defend us. Moses, he's got our back. He's the one who gave us this law. We no, Moses isn't on your side, guys. Moses actually testifies against them. The one in whom they have set their hope, he's on Jesus' side. And Jesus lets them know. He says, I'm not going to, we're not, you're going to be accused by Moses. He's the one because he wrote about me. Did, did, did Moses specifically mention Jesus? Absolutely. You know what he says? Moses, and thank you Moses for joining us today. Nice beard. Appreciate you being with us today. Moses, can you tell us what you, what you said about Jesus? Yeah, I told, I told these guys. They know. I said to them, the Lord, your God, the one who they claim they're following, he's going to raise up a prophet like me, like me, but not, not me, from among you, from your brothers. But I, I also clarified something. Moses, what did you clarify? 
I said to them, they need to listen to him. That's what it says. That's what Moses said. Moses comes in, he's like, you guys, you're not listening to him. I told you about him. I wrote about him. I pointed to him. And now you're trying to get me? And you're trying to, you're, you're placing your hope in me? I told you not to do that. Listen to him. And they're tearing their robes and they're all upset and the, the courtroom goes berserk. Jesus becomes the prosecutor. He brings in who they thought was their star witness. And he's been for Jesus this entire time. Folks, these witnesses, this testimony, it's not just for them, is it? I ask the jury, what's your verdict? You saw the witness, John the Baptist. Jesus has the witness of the Father, the voice is spoken. Exhibits one through seven. Scriptures and the very one who the accusers think are is on their side is on his side. But before you make that decision, we all need to realize something. It's not Jesus' life that's on the line. Your verdict. Do you believe who he says he is? Or if you don't believe who he says he is, is a matter of life and death. Case closed. Father, thank you that you did not leave us without evidence. You did not leave us without this testimony that all of these things and people, yourself included, point to the fact that Jesus is God, that in him is life, and that if we trust in him, we will have that life. Lord, I pray that you continue to encourage us, remind us of these truths as we go out and try to share this wonderful truth with a world that doesn't believe it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.